Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Every week, a few of our favourite writers read out their articles from the latest issue. This week, we're going to be joined by Jonathan Miller, Matthew Lynn, and Melissa Kite. First, it's Jonathan Miller who talks about France's COVID passport revolt. Here he is. Three weeks ago, 100,000 demonstrators turned out on the streets of France to protest President Emmanuel Macron's new law to require vaccination passports to get on a train, eat at a restaurant, visit a shopping centre, or even drink a cup of coffee on a terrace. A week later, the number had more than doubled. And last Saturday, it doubled again. One police union estimated that close to 500,000 had turned out, although, as usual, the Interior Ministry claimed a much lower number. Enormous demonstrations were staged, not just in Paris, but in more than 150 cities and towns across France, as well as in the overseas territories of Guadeloupe and Réunion. All this in the middle of the sacred summer holiday season, when French demonstrators usually take a break. On the current trajectory, one million could be on the streets by September, and with eight months to go before the first round of the presidential election, Macron and his ministers have kindled a national revolt. It could be as prolonged and divisive as the revolt of the Yellow Jackets, the Gilets Jaunes, which was only finally extinguished in March 2020 by the first wave of COVID. Macron's ministers seem to be pouring petrol on the flames. This week, the health minister insulted protesters as a magma of anti-vax, anti-science and anti-state activists. With the connivance of tame media, they painted protesters as dangerous, ultra-right-wing extremists, even as anti-Semites. Anyone outside of France can be forgiven for misreading the mood here. The deliberate demonization of protesters is enthusiastically relayed by foreign journalists who parrot the official line. The Sunday Times even called protesters far-right and gilets jaunes. Yet, as scores of videos available on social media show, these are not your archetypal tinfoil hat-wearing anti-Semitic anti-vaxxers, although perhaps a tiny handful might be. Indeed, many of them have been jabbed themselves. After a slow start, roughly 90% of French people over 50 have had two jabs. Nor are many wearing yellow jackets. They say they're protesting liberticide, the progressive elimination of freedom and the cause of fighting an epidemic that's being exploited, they think, to divide the country in the service of Macron's re-election campaign. They're objecting to compulsion, to endless official intrusions into everyday life, and they quake at talk of a third, fourth, or even annual or biannual vaccination against the endless mutation of variants. These demonstrators are young and old, though mostly young. They include uniformed firefighters, families, teachers, Catholics, leftists, rightists, nationalists, nurses, and restaurant owners. Many are pushing prams. They're not black-clad anarchists or rustics. They're overwhelmingly middle-class and peaceful. Many say it's the first demonstration they've ever attended. There's a theory that Macron is deliberately dividing the French, separating the young and the fed-up from the baby boomers, who are his natural constituents. If so, it's a dangerous strategy. I've lived in France on and off for 20 years. I'm 
unable to recall such a petulant mood. Ten days ago, the newly appointed prefect of the department where I lived declared it compulsory to wear face masks, not just inside, but outside. The cynicism is general. The disobedience has been blatant. The edict in my corner of southwest France is being totally ignored, or at least by 80% of those I see on the streets. While on Monday night in Paris, police were raiding restaurants and checking the identity passes of people eating their dinner, and at railway stations, officials were checking every traveller and issuing blue bracelets to authorise them to board trains. Elsewhere, businesses at restaurants and cafes had collapsed. Hideous wire cages were being erected in some places to stop the evasion of controls. Naturally, the restaurants at the National Assembly and Senate were exempt from any of this. Eighteen months ago, France became a republic of absurdities. It became illegal to leave the house without a pass, and supermarkets were forbidden to sell non-essential socks. The country was then subjected to a curfew, even earlier than that imposed by the Germans during the occupation. And today, the dirigisme are becoming even more sinister and provocative. Hospitals are hiring hundreds of security guards to scan health passports before admitting visitors, and even some patients. Although many mutinous healthcare workers are threatened with a sack for refusing passports themselves. Real crime seems to be running rampant while the police occupy themselves with the controlling people eating dinner. Another Catholic priest was murdered by an illegal immigrant on Monday, a migrant who a year ago set fire to the cathedral in Nantes and had been released on bail. This is making the French even more annoyed. If today small businesses are threatened with fines of 45,000 euros and their owners with a year in prison for failure to check the status of their customers, the future looks worse. Most provocative of all is the government's intention to demand the vaccination of 12-year-old school children by the time schools come back in September. And it's being briefed that the government wishes next to vaccinate children of five but it's estimated that fewer than 20 children have died in France with COVID since March 2020, and many of them have had comorbidities. Perhaps just one of them died of COVID alone. Macron has no children, having married a woman 24 years his senior. It's fair to suppose he has absolutely no idea how provocative this is likely to prove. Yet he apparently believes his authoritarianism will get him re-elected, and it might. Almost unnoticed, in the July vote passing the passport law, Macron's majority three times rejected amendments, specifically excluding the possibility that a pass sanitaire will be required to vote in France. Surely such a measure would be impossible. Perhaps, but it's an indication of the mood here that many don't think so, especially after the Constitutional Council of superannuated politicians waved through the vaccine passports with nary a murmur. Political opposition to the president remains fractured and weak. Few mainstream politicians have put their heads above the parapet to support the demonstrators. It's a little remarked feature of the president's crackdown that the one group he will depend on to enforce his new law has been specifically excluded from complying with it. The police... Their armories have been freshly replenished with tear gas and rubber bullets after the Gilets Jaunes protests. 
the demonstrations against the vaccination passports have so far been peaceful. But a month from now, that may no longer be true. That was Jonathan Miller. Now it's Matthew Lynn talking about 50 years since the Nixon shock, when President Nixon broke from the gold standard. The dot-com bubble, the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, the oil price spiral of the 1970s, the launch of the single currency. It would be fun, in a nerdish kind of a way, to debate which was the most seismic economic event of post-war history. But in fact, the answer would be this, the Nixon shock, a fateful day when the final link between gold and the money you carry around in your pocket or on your bank card was finally severed. And it happened 50 years ago this week. A half century on, enough time for some historical perspective. How's it going? Well, since then we've had a couple of rounds of hyperinflation and maybe heading into another one, a couple of spectacular asset bubbles, the worst financial crisis the world has ever known, the lowest interest rates since records began, and debt exploding on a scale that would once have been unimaginable. Stable? Not exactly. The gold standard was far from perfect, far from it. But in reality, we are still reading from the Nixon shock and trying to work out what a functioning monetary system might look like. Even with worries about inflation rising, gold has hardly been performing well. It has fallen sharply over the past year, and even more over the past week or so, down from $2,000 an ounce 12 months ago to $1,740 now. But gold is not the same thing as money anymore, whatever its true believers might try to claim. That ended half a century ago. Gold, along with silver, had been the base of all money throughout most of human history. Under the post-war Bretton Woods system, mainly designed by John Maynard Keynes, the dollar was linked to gold and other currencies were linked to the dollar. A tenuous link was maintained between a pound, a yen, or, as it then was, a franc or a Deutschmark, and a stash of the precious metal stored in a vault somewhere. In extremis, and in a roundabout way, you could swap some folding bills for actual gold. As 1971 dragged on, and with the Vietnam War proving unsustainably expensive, along with new social programs, President Richard Nixon decided the United States could no longer afford to maintain that link. With inflation rising, its reserves were draining away, as other central banks decided to cash in on the American promise to convert dollars into gold. On 13th of August, Nixon decided to end the link. Two days later, he announced the decision in a TV broadcast, choosing a Sunday night when the markets were closed. It was temporary at first, as these things often are, while reforms to the Bretton Woods system were discussed. As it turned out, it never came back. The global economy entered a new era of free-floating exchange rates, and what economists refer to as pure fiat money, that is, money that exists on nothing more than the promise of a central bank, and ultimately a government to maintain its purchasing power. The Washington Post writer William Greeder later described it as the precise date on which America's singular dominance of the world economy ended. A new book on the subject, Three Days at Camp David, How a Secret Meeting in 1971 Transformed the Global Economy, by Jeffrey Garton of the Yale School of Management, argues that the world was never the same afterwards. Professional historians might debate whether 50 years is enough time for any real perspective on the experiment. The rest of us will probably decide there is plenty of evidence and not much of it is very encouraging. Uh, true, we no longer have the periodic exchange rate crises that used to cripple governments, especially of economies in relative decline. Uh, the UK was especially prone to them. But otherwise, it had been a very bumpy ride. 
The oil price explosion triggered the inflationary spiral of the 1970s, followed by the battle to stabilise prices with crushing interest rates and skyrocketing unemployment during the 1980s. That was followed by the rampant dot-com bubble, a crash followed by another bubble, and then the financial collapse of a decade ago, as banks and financial institutions went bust on an unprecedented scale. But by far the most extraordinary trend has been the rise of debt. According to the IMF, by the close of last year, global debt hit $281 trillion, the highest on record, and equal to 335% of global GDP. It has been going up every year, spurred on by central banks printing cash. When there was a link between money and gold, that was impossible. You would need a lot more of the metal to finance all that borrowing than exists on this planet, and probably a few others as well. With fiat money, there is no limit to how much you can magic out of thin air. Of course, the gold standard was far from perfect, and neither was the dollar-linked version created after the Second World War. Even by the 1970s, the United States was no longer dominant enough in the global economy to carry the system by itself. That is even more true today. In 1970, the US still accounted for 40% of global output, but it is less than half of that now. And yet the system of central bank money that has emerged since then is far from perfect either. It has created massive instability, endless boom and bust cycles, soaring inequality, and sent asset prices through the roof, as well as creating unprecedented levels of debt. It has taken governments a while to realise it means you can print money without limit. Now the penny has dropped, there is no way of knowing when they will stop. Slowly we may be edging towards a different monetary system. That is certainly part of the story behind Bitcoin. People are looking for a form of money that is independent of the state, in the way the gold used to be. One point is certain. A half century on from that fateful day, we are still shaken by the Nixon shock and figuring out how to cope with its aftermath. That was Matthew Lynn. And finally, Melissa Kite about her methods of getting over COVID. Contact a GP if you're worried about symptoms four weeks after having COVID. That was the NHS quote on the end of a story about Piers Morgan, who was still feeling ill three weeks after getting the lurgy. Me too, Piers. It took the builder boyfriend almost as long to get over it, and his father. We make an interesting control group, don't we? Piers Morgan and the builder boyfriend's father are both double jabbed. The builder boyfriend and I are not vaccinated. And here we all are, going through exactly the same thing as we try to get over COVID. Of course, the government wants to argue that the vaccinated escape hospitalisation. That's their prerogative. So when the unvaccinated, like me and the Bill B, aren't hospitalised, that doesn't count. Can I add into this control group the double-jabbed girl who gave me the BB and his father COVID? She's a 20-something au pair in a big house where the Bill B is doing a job. She just got back from a festival and kept making him snacks and coffees, which was very nice of her. One day she disappeared into her room and the owner of the property had to tell the BB that the double jabbed au pair was now doubled up on her bed with Covid. A few days later the BB became ill and his father too. They both did a test and came up positive. A few days after that there I was with body aches, sticking the darn thing up my nose. Two lines. I chewed garlic, I knocked back beechams, I looked wistfully at the four wormers I'd recently bought from the country store, which our horses just happened to be due. Yes, ivermectin. If it gets bad, I nodded grimly to the Equimax. The BB told me not to be so stupid, so I stuck to the garlic. 
I ran around after the BB, making him drink some food. But after a week, we were both lying in bed. I felt as though an ice pick was stabbing me in the neck. The BB descended into a sleep so deep, I had to keep poking him to see if he was alive. After another week, he rose from the dead like Lazarus and declared himself stronger than ever. A good bout of the Delta variant, he said, had strengthened him up a treat. We often joke that the BB has been alive for 500 years and is really a vampire, such as his fortitude. I'm pretty strong too, but I couldn't get up. What manner of thing is this? I groaned. Ow! And the ice pick stabbed me again. I was the worst patient and the BB was the worst nursemaid. He was better, so he simply wasn't interested. Orange juice, I whimpered, for I was making my way through the EU Tropicana Smooth Mountain, if there is such a thing. My body must have been crying out for vitamin C as I was drinking two litre and a half cartons a day. The BB plonked a carton down by my bed every so often to save me crawling to the fridge. When I think of the lightly scrambled eggs I made you, I thought, murderously, as he whistled around downstairs, making himself dinner, as I groaned and sobbed. But that's men for you. Anyway, this control group. It's now more than three weeks, and I still have no sense of taste and smell. I have what feels like a bad head cold and a horrible temper on me. I mean worse than usual. Is anger a COVID symptom? I have it bad. I'm really, really angry with the Builder boyfriend for not scrambling me eggs. And I'm flaming furious with the stupid girl who went to a festival believing the government line about the double jabbed. I do find one thing amusing. The NHS saying they want us to contact something called a GP to discuss our COVID symptoms. It's actually entertaining, it's so ludicrous. What I really want to discuss and I would be able to at length if this was still a free country, is the question of how all of us suffered in exactly the same way. Jabbed or unjabbed, it didn't make a jot of difference to how COVID raged through us. Oh, I'm sure if I'd been jabbed, the NHS quote machine would even now be churning one out to claim the vaccine saved my life. I'd be a brave COVID survivor like Piers, who has dutifully thanked the vaccine while admitting he's as sick as a dog. Good boy. Me, I'm thanking no one, apart from God and my immune system and garlic, because I know how much that will irritate the vaccine police. That was Melissa Kite. Thanks for listening to this episode of Spectator Out Loud. If you enjoy this podcast, do leave us a rating and a review. And remember, you can pick up the magazine for £12 for 12 issues at spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher and also get an Amazon voucher. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. Bye.